This morning, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 13. If you are using one of our church Bibles, ESV Bibles, and you can find the passage on page 890. That's Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. This is what Holy Scripture says. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we open his book. Our Father, we're very grateful to you for your abounding grace. We've seen that grace in Hector and Evie and Nicole's lives. And now we're praying for a different kind of grace, an illuminating grace by the power of your Holy Spirit to help us understand your word and then to order our lives according to it. So please give help and strength and wisdom and all that we need. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, years ago, uh, there was a flock of young men in this church who, who, frankly, had no manners. They were slobs. They lacked all etiquette. And having come to their senses, one of these young men approached me one day and said, look, at one of our men's meetings, could we just devote it to being taught some manners? And I thought this was an excellent idea. And so we did that very thing, and you may judge my success as a mentor by evaluating the life of Steve Funston. This was a remarkable men's meeting. It was like going back into the 17th century. There was known in that day the Society for the Propagation of Manners, which I always thought was the most amazing name for any society ever. So we did that. We learned how to set tables. What, where does a knife go? Where does the fork go? Those kinds of things. Honey, don't judge me. Uh, we, learned up, we learned that you should stand when ladies enter the room. We learned that when there's pizza, you don't have to eat all of it. You could let other people have some, things like that. Now, these, of course, were not biblical principles. They were manners, culturally acceptable forms of behavior, which in 2023 are quite different from the world in which Jesus lived. For instance, when Jesus ate, it was most often lying down at a table that was about a foot high. You would just kind of lie on your, on your side and you would eat at the table. Most of the time, women would not be at the table. They would eat separately from the men. That kind of thing was what defined that kind of culture. And thankfully, the Lord does not require us to adopt first century Jewish culture or etiquette at his table, the Lord's Supper. He does, however, require us to do a few things in that supper a certain way a cross-cultural, cross-chronological way. And so in this, my last sermon in this series on the church, this is the last sermon on the Lord's Supper, my goal here is to deal with what we eat, 
what we drink, and who gets to join us at the table. And my goal is to get us as, as close to the Bible as we can get. So let's begin with point number one, which is this. We eat bread at the supper. We eat bread at the Lord's Supper. Bread, not Pringles. I like Pringles, by the way, in case you're taking note of things I like. Uh, But Matthew 26, verse 26 says this, as they were eating, as they were eating what? They're eating the Passover meal. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now remember that Jesus is taking over the Passover meal and he's turning it into the Lord's Supper or what we sometimes call communion. Now, at a Passover meal, you were only to eat unleavened bread. Why? Not because unleavened things were more holy than leavened things. You were to eat unleavened bread because you were to eat this meal in a hurry. And in in the commemoration of the meal, year after year, you continue to eat in a hurry because you escaped Egypt in a rush. So in that first meal, Israel was told, skip the leaven. Leaven is a fermented dough, not yeast. If you're a baker, you would use yeast, I'm told. Uh, But uh, you would always keep a little bit of the leavened dough, and then you mix that little bit into your next dough, and that will uh, cause it to rise. But that's the thing. It takes time for bread to rise. Thinking about this this week, I was remembering when my mom used to make bread, and I'd come stomping into the kitchen, and she would say, walk softly, or you will cause the bread to fall. I don't understand it, but that's apparently what would happen. So Jesus here uh, almost certainly took unleavened bread, and he gave that unleavened bread to his disciples, the 11 disciples who were there, when he established the Lord's Supper. Now, the text does not specify that it was unleavened bread. And interestingly, no other text says that it is to be unleavened bread. Now, some argue that to be on point, to be as close to the Scriptures as we can be, we ought to be using unleavened bread for the Lord's Supper today. But that tends to be argued from how people think leaven is used in the Bible. It is most often used in a very negative way. I'll give you one example. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy functions like a leaven. It it just slowly infiltrates everything. And so people say, look, leaven is bad. The trouble is, Jesus also used leaven to illustrate good things. Uh, So in Matthew 13, verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So the leaven can be used to describe the imperceptible growth of God's kingdom. It's It's a good illustration. And so because of that, and because we're never, it's never specified, we would think it's of little consequence whether you use leavened bread or unleavened bread. Unleavened bread happened to be most likely the bread at hand at that moment because of the whole connection to Passover. But Jesus does not seem to stress what kind of bread is used, just that bread is used. 
I do think that means we should avoid things like crackers, Pringles, and shreddies. Um, We should use bread. That much is clear. And unleavened bread is fine as long as you're not thinking that leavened bread is sinful. So if you're really convinced leavened bread is sinful, I'd really want to use unleavened. I'd really want to use the leavened bread uh, to say it's not in the bread. The, the, the bread, it's just it's got to be bread. So one of the things we want to think about in our church is actually finding the most hypoallergenic, you know, gluten-free, everybody-can-eat kind of bread. Uh, and largely because the, the imagery of the one loaf, that we are the one people of God, which seems to be of much greater... Con- much greater importance than the kind of bread that you use. I'm still hearing a lot of feedback, Sam. I don't know if you are or you are, but it's making me think you are. So I'll just mention that, and I'll try to talk louder, and you can turn me down. Anyway, the broken bread is, um, is, is often talked about as uh, when, when we break this bread, it's like the broken body of Jesus. And I just wanted to take the opportunity while we were here to clarify that. Because when Jesus took bread, he broke it, and he distributed it to his disciples that, that was the, just the very common way to eat. The head of the table would tear off a chunk of bread. I, I know if you're like COVID, whatever, uh, the flu. Uh, it, it, that's just how we would eat. We would take a chunk of bread and you would hand it to the person next to you. He would hand it down the line. That's just how people ate. And I remember being in a church in uh, another city one time and attending that service. It was a Lord's Supper service. Very dramatic. I very dramatic. The pastor got up and he held a loaf of bread and he, and he said, this is my body broken. And he tore the bread, the loaf of bread apart. Broken for you. And I know why he said it, but it's kind of unfortunate. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24 for a minute. In, in some of your English versions, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, you will read a word that has been added into the text. So, some versions read like this. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I just wanted to take an opportunity to say, here's a great example of what's called a transmission error. So, the Bible was written, and it's highly reliable. If you need to talk to me about the reliability of the Scriptures, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, but one of the things that happens over time is sometimes a copyist will, will try to help the text out a little bit by adding a word. Uh, so you find in the old Latin versions, which is one family of documents, the word broken has been added here, which is broken for you. You find in the Ethiopic and Vulgate versions, the word given was added, which is given for you. And yet our most reliable and oldest manuscripts just say, which is for you which is what your ESV and other versions would have today. So we just presume that some well-meaning copyist added the word broken or added the word given to try and help tie this text to his misunderstanding of the Gospels. Why do I say misunderstandings? Because in the Gospels, John makes this point, John 13, verse 33. When they came to Jesus, this is at the crucifixion, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. (laughs) Right? And John says, these things took place that the Scripture, the Old Testament, might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. 
Jesus had none of his bones broken. He gave up his spirit at the right moment. It was not robbed from him like it was from the two robbers who had their legs broken so they would almost instantaneously suffocate and die. So perhaps it's better to just avoid any confusion and never use that broken word. There is a metaphorical sense where we can say Christ was broken for us, broken in the sense of a a broken man. But I think people get confused, and and then it's confusing with the gospel, which tells us that none of his bones were broken. So we eat bread in pieces from a common loaf that helps us to remember his body, unbroken body. Secondly, we drink wine at the supper, or we might. (laughs) In the language of the Old Testament, there are seven words for wine. Uh, They're all translated as wine or something like that in English. There is one word for unfermented wine, which we would think of as grape juice. It's not exactly the same, but we'll just call it grape juice. One word for grape juice, seven words for wine. I want you to look at uh, Numbers chapter 6, Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 6. And there's a thing called the Nazarite vow, not the Nazarene. Jesus was from a town called Nazareth. He was called a Nazarene. Different, completely different word, completely different language. Nazarite um, is one who is devoted to God. He's made a special vow. Male or female has devoted themselves to God. Number 6, verse 2. This is the only place in the Bible the word grape juice is used. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, number 6, 2. When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to Yahweh, to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes. There's your grape juice. Or eat grapes, fresh or dried, raisins. (laughs) All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All right? Now, I point this out because I've sometimes heard it said by well-meaning people that when the Bible says wine, it really means grape juice. Have you heard that? And the problem with that is it's not true. (laughs) When the Bible means wine, it means alcoholic grape juice, if you like. There was a different word for non-alcoholic grape juice. That's there. And, And what's interesting is that if you're taking a Nazarite vow... No wine, no grape juice, no seed of a grape, no skin of a grape, no nothing grape, like no grapes of any form. But they were different things, wine and grape juice. I have also heard people say that the wine of Bible times had a very different alcoholic content from our modern wines. But that argument doesn't work if you just read your Bible. Look at Deuteronomy 14 for a moment, Deuteronomy so I had a book to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Remember I said there's seven words translated for wine. I don't, I'm not going to do it. I could take you to every single one of them and show how it's used in a good sense and then how it's used in a bad sense. I'll just do it with this one. Um, and, and by bad sense, I mean leading to drunkenness. So these wines are most definitely alcoholic. So this most common word for wine, yayin, uh, We read of it being used in a very good way in Deuteronomy 14. He 
So every year you're to take 10% of everything, your cattle, your grain, everything, and you bring it to God in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know it's Jerusalem yet, so it's just called the city that he has appointed. But every year you're to do that. What happens if you live really far away? That's a pain in the neck to bring all that stuff to Jerusalem. So the Lord gives this. Deuteronomy 14, verse 24. If the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe when Yahweh your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which Yahweh your God chooses to set his name there, namely Jerusalem, then you shall turn it, the tithe, all that stuff, you turn it into money. You sell it and you get money. And then bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses, Jerusalem. Here we go. And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, which is not a very good translation. It's beer. It's a, it's a grain-based alcohol. We would just think of it as beer. So spend your money for wine and beer, whatever your appetite craves, And you shall eat, therefore, before Yahweh your God and rejoice, you and your household. So here's God saying, if you want, buy some beer and wine and buy some pork chop. No, not pork chop. Uh, (laughs) You know what I mean. Get some meat and uh, have a barbecue and, and, and have a wonderful time. And so the word wine, I'm just trying to point out to you here, is being used in a very good way. This is God recommending you buy some wine in order to help you celebrate your tithe. But that same word for wine can be used in a very negative way. So this is Proverbs 3, verse 20. Not immediately obvious in our English translation, but it says, Be not among drunkards. And that word drunkard is a compound word in the Hebrew. It means um, like the old English versions had wine bibber. It's an old term if you don't know it. But it's the idea of um, having too much wine. Be not among those who drink too much wine or among, or among gluttonous eaters of meat. Both are wrong. Drunkenness and gluttony. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. I just want you to notice that While drunkenness is condemned, wine is not. It's drinking too much wine, that's how you become drunk. Just like meat is not condemned in that proverb, but the gluttony of eating too much meat is condemned. There are all kinds of examples of this in your Bible. We see the same thing, in fact, in the New Testament. There is no Bible verse that condemns the drinking of wine or beer. However, there are many warnings and many condemnations of drunkenness. So I just want to be extra clear that if the Bible does not condemn the drinking of an alcoholic beverage, it most certainly always consistently, Old Testament new, condemns drunkenness, which is drinking too much of it. Clear of that? Good. Clear. Now, There are people, really well-meaning people again, who say, well, the cure to drunkenness is never drink alcohol. And that's true at one level, but it's actually not the Bible's solution. The Bible's solution is, should you wish, to enjoy God's good gifts. So this is Psalm 104, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, 
oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So the psalmist is praising God for bread, oil, and wine and saying, these are gifts from you, Lord, to make our lives better. Notice, we are not commanded to drink wine, and if you don't want to, that's fine, but you are most certainly permitted to. Consider the water that Jesus miraculously turned into wine. Just consider the quantity of it. If you go back and look in John 2, these massive containers of wine or water that were turned into wine. And, and remember, the wine was really good wine. It wasn't the cheap stuff. He made a ton of it. John chapter 2, verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everybody serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. So here is Jesus himself providing, miraculously providing good wine. And that, there, friends, there is no contradiction whatsoever in Jesus miraculously providing good wine and saying, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. No inconsistency. The issue is not the wine. The issue is the wine drinker, the one who drinks too much of it. Now, in the description of the first Lord's Supper, Jesus does not use the word wine. He says, the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine is a euphemism for wine. Uh, you see hints of this in uh, Old Testament texts like Joel chapter 2. Uh, the fig tree and the vine give their full fruit, their full yield. So what's the full yield? What's the full fruit of the vine? He tells us in the next verse, um, the vats overflow with wine. That's the yield of the vine. So when Jesus says the fruit of the vine, he's talking about wine. I'm pointing this out because I just want to preach it once in my life and then move on. I'm not, a, I'm not an evangelist for wine. But there are many people who have said, look, Jesus didn't say wine in the, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. He said fruit of the vine, and wine is evil. And so he said fruit of the vine because he meant grape juice. And that's just messing with the text. It's forcing your agenda onto the words of the Bible. You and I need to learn to just be close readers of the Bible. What it says, nothing more, nothing less. And it was quite obviously wine. And think about what Jesus said. I can prove it to you because if you remember back to last week, Mark 14, verse 25, truly I say to you, I'll not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new, where? In the kingdom of God. We can be absolutely 100% certain that he meant wine when he said fruit of the vine because remember how Isaiah described the same day to us? We saw it last week in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And this is remarkable. Jesus, in the great day, in the day of the Lord, when we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, serves the very best wine, perfectly aged and well-refined. That means the best of the best. I looked it up. In October 2018, somebody paid $558,000 for one bottle of a 1945 Romanée Conti. 
uh, fine French Burgundy made in the Albatross year of 1945 where everything came together and it is regarded as the finest wine ever made. Somebody paid over a half million dollars for one bottle of wine. I don't know what Jesus is serving at his feast, but I think it's better than that. So, one of the matters we want to consider is the membership of this church is switching from grape juice to wine at the Lord's Supper meals. There are typically two objections to this and one concern. I'll deal with the concern first because it's the easiest. The concern is, what if I'm a member of this church and I'm 17 years old? No problem. The laws of our land allow for the sacramental uh, drinking of alcoholic beverages in religious services, so you won't be breaking the law. That was an easy one. Let's go to the two harder ones. What about when we say we shouldn't use wine in order to love our weaker brothers and sisters? So very frank, frequently, and, and I love the instinct here, people are thinking Romans 14, shouldn't we abstain from drinking in front of somebody who doesn't drink by conviction, someone who's, who's a teetotaler? That's a very loving thing to ask, but it kind of misses the point, well, more than kind of, misses the point of Romans 14. In that passage, the weaker brother does not drink wine. And the way to love him, if you read through Romans 14, 1, through the, about halfway through chapter 15, the way to love him is not for you, the stronger brother, to stop drinking wine. It is rather to be very cautious to not in any way manipulate your weaker brother to go against his conscience, to go against what he believes is going to please God. And Paul makes really clear in Romans 14 that weaker is not better. It's better to be stronger. It'd be, everybody for, it'd be better for everyone to have a strong conscience. And so that's why there's even a place for stronger brothers to lovingly, humbly, patiently teach weaker brothers. That's why I'm taking some time to work through some of these things this morning on the use of wine. I'm hoping that we can all talk about that at our members' meeting and come to some agreement. I would remind you that your Lord drank wine. So freely, in fact, that his enemies accused him of being a drunkard. Do you remember that, Matthew 11? Jesus says, he's, he's quoting what people are saying about him and John the Baptist. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, me, Jesus, came eating and drinking. He doesn't mean drinking water. He means drinking wine. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It doesn't make any sense for people to accuse Jesus of being a drunkard if all he drank was grape juice. So I'm just pointing out that the Lord, in appropriate social settings, would drink of wine. And so we believe a church can rightly choose to offer wine alone in the Lord's Supper and not be violating Romans 14. The second objection we have heard is this. We need to not drink wine in order to, to love our friends who have struggled with alcoholism. So, I, again, I appreciate that sentiment because, the, the, and I was told this for years as a young person, we can't have wine because if an alcoholic has just one sip of wine, that will plunge them back into drunkenness. And I am sympathetic to the motive behind that, but it's confusing a few issues. 
you might as well suggest that not eating, we shouldn't eat bread because it's going to plunge the glutton into overeating. Right? Martin Luther said this, Do not suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused. Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? Uh, That's when you quote Luther. I would never say that, but Luther could. No, of course. The solution is not to abolish that which has led one into temptation, although that has not led them into temptation. Their own heart has. I would like to suggest to you that there is as much likelihood of a glutton being tempted to gorge on a bag of Pringles from eating a piece of bread at the Lord's Supper as there is to an alcoholic going on a bender from a sip of wine at the Lord's Supper. If either case were to prove true, the problem lies in the heart of the participant, not in the elements that are used in the supper. That's why Paul can say to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. I have even heard people say, oh, he meant rub wine on the outside of your stomach. I'm serious. That's not what he meant. It's, it's, while, it's why church officers are, are instructed not to stop drinking wine, just not to drink too much of it. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. Did you know, a little history lesson here, okay? Did you know that no church used grape juice in the Lord's Supper until the mid-1800s? So you have 1,850 years of the church consistently using wine. And even when that happened, it was a very, very tiny minority. Here's how it happened. There were really good Christian people, really good, who started to form what were called temperance societies. Temperance is an older word that means moderation. And the goal, because drunkenness was rampant culturally in a lot of the English-speaking world, the goal was to help people learn temperance, to help them learn moderation in their use of alcohol. And that, in fact, is what the Bible teaches. Use it with moderation. But like many, many good things, people began to reason beyond what the Scriptures taught, and they decided that removing all access to all alcohol would solve the problem of drunkenness all the time, altogether. And obviously that's true, but it was going beyond what the Bible teaches, and in that sense it was legalism. And you know what's true about legalism? It always sounds good to a lot of us. So there was a move from temperance to abstention. We're going to abstain from ever drinking anything alcoholic which even led to the the 18th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America. You might know it as Prohibition. And and the Prohibition era, era from 1919 to 1933, it was illegal, according to the Constitution, to produce, import, transport, or sell alcoholic beverages unless it was for communion. So the Christians who were behind Prohibition made sure that wine would still be used at the Lord's Supper. Even if they were adamant that there should be no alcohol anywhere else, they were adamant that wine need to be reserved for the Lord's Supper. In fact, the LCBO today, which is our our provincial regulator of alcoholic beverages, there is a way uh, you can gain access to sacramental wine. It's still a thing. Anyway, 
Uh, okay, this stuff just fascinates me because it wasn't long before this that there was a Methodist group, Wesleyan Methodist group, a little bit more to the kind of works righteousness thing. They put out a call that we want a non-alcoholic wine. That's what they called it, non-alcoholic wine to use in the Lord's Supper. There was a dentist who was a Methodist who was a bit of an experimenter who had read of the experiments of Louis Pasteur pasteurization, and he figured out a way to pasteurize grape juice so it would not begin, because as soon as you crush grapes, the, the juice starts fermenting. It starts moving toward alcohol. He figured out a way through pasteurization to stop that. His name was Thomas Bramwell Welch. Yeah, that's where Welch's grape juice came from. So all that to say, Welch's grape juice was born out of legalistic Methodism. <laughs> anyway, it just remained very, very uncommon to use grape juice at the Lord's Supper until you get to like the 1950s or so. And even then, it was pretty much just some Protestants. Now, just because something is historically recent does not mean it is wrong, but it doesn't mean it is right either. The Bible is very, very clear. Do not get drunk with wine. We think that the use of wine over grape juice is a matter of prudence and preference. And that being said, the preference of the elders of this church is to move toward wine in the use of the Lord's Supper, but we want to talk with our members about that before we do it. Why wine? Because all the textual evidence leans that way more than it does to grape juice. It brings to mind the future marriage supper of the Lamb more dramatically, Isaiah 25, and it sure makes a whole lot more sense out of 1 Corinthians 11:20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, eating what? The Lord's Supper, each each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. It's impossible to get drunk on grape juice. And the Christians in Corinth were getting drunk at their Lord's suppers. And Paul doesn't say, switch to grape juice. He says, stop getting drunk. You might be thinking, well, what about if we served grape juice and wine? Lots of churches do that. That could be an accommodation to weaker brothers and sisters, but the problem is it begins to drift away from the unity that the supper is intended to portray. So we think if it's possible and our members agree, then we like to serve wine alone. One bread, one cup. That takes us to the third thing. We eat and drink with our fellow members and some guests at the supper. Uh, several of you have been asking about this, especially over the last couple of sermons, wanting to know who then is invited to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's what we're going to try and answer. Let's move methodically. First of all, we know that the members of this church are to participate in the Lord's Supper. I think we've shown that very clearly in the previous two sermons. If you need help with that, I would encourage you I think we still have sermons online. You can go back and listen to those. What do we know about the members of this church? We know they're Christians. We've heard their gospel. We know they're living a life that is in overall obedience to God. So we know their what and we know their who. We know they've been baptized. We know that baptism should precede participation in the Lord's Supper. And at their baptism, they were made members of this local ecclesia, this gathering. We have exercised the keys, Matthew 18, and we have brought them in and, and bound them to us. And we know that they are not walking in some unrepentant sin because if they were, then other Christians would be involved in their lives and calling them back. And if that would escalate in the Matthew 18 way, eventually the members of this church would exercise the keys again, not to bind them to us, but to loose them from us. And 
essentially to loose them from participation in the Lord's Supper. They would be discommuned or excommunicated. And we've also learned that the supper serves to distinguish who the members of this local ecclesia, this local church are. When those members participate in that supper, they discern or mark off the local body, the local ecclesia. 1 Corinthians 11.29 again, what part of what we're doing there is discerning the body. I don't think I've mentioned it, but that word discern, diakrinomai, it's to, it's to separate, to, to make a distinction, to distinguish something by evaluating it. So you're, you're carefully examining something in order to distinguish it from something else. So when Paul says that, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that's what he's speaking about. So in this sense, when the members of Grace Fellowship Church participate in the Lord's Supper together, when they remember Christ all together corporately in one action, they mark themselves off from everyone else. They say, we are the Christians here. But clearly, we are not the only Christians in the world. So we also invite to our table the members of certain other churches let me give you an example. I was really happy to hang out with uh, Peter Mahaffey. Peter used to be on staff here. He went with a group of people to help a nearby church. He's a pastor over there now. And I'm going to use Peter. I was hanging out with him last week. I'm going to use Pete as my example, my guinea pig. What if Pete comes back here to preach, and it happens to be a Sunday that we are participating in the Lord's Supper? I want you to think about this theologically, all right, from what we've learned. Would it be appropriate for him to participate with us in the supper since he is no longer a member of this church. He's a former member of this church. He's a former pastor in this church. We know he's a Christian. We know he's not in sin. We've participated in the supper with him many times in the past. What would keep him from participating in the supper with us? One thing. He's not a member here. Historically, that has been called closed, with a D, closed communion. The table is closed to every person who is not a member here. And frankly, that really simplifies things. But it also leads to some pretty significant questions, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not interested in the sentimental questions like, well, we like Pete. Like, come on, it's Pete. I'm interested in the biblical theological questions. What's the right thing to do, Bible? Well, this is where we start to pull together a bunch of texts and the last three sermons and see where it takes us. I think it is safe to say that we do not want to have participate with us in the Lord's Supper anybody who's not a Christian, who's not baptized at all, and is not a member of any local church. How could we? Because to do so would be contradicting our own convictions and our own practice. And that person, even if they're truly born again, is likely walking in disobedience to God, refusing to be baptized, refusing to uh, associate with a church, or maybe in the best-case scenario, they're currently providentially in this situational limbo, and the solution is to fix their situation, not affirm their potential sinful actions by being overly polite. 
But what do we do with the Peters of the world? He's a Christian. He's baptized. He's a member in good standing at a church down the road. It's a gospel-preaching church. What does the Bible say we're to do with him? Not much. The one text that might instruct us is in Acts 20. It would be good if you, look, if you turn there. Acts chapter 20, verse 5. What do we do with somebody we're very convinced is a Christian and we're having the Lord's Supper? Acts 20, verse 5, these... It's a group of Paul's co-workers went on ahead and were waiting for us, that's Paul and Luke, at a city called Troas. We sailed away from Philippi in the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So there for a week. Verse 7, Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them The church, the gathering, the ecclesia of Troas, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, what I want you to see is that when Luke writes, gathered together to break bread, he might be referring to the Lord's Supper, or he might be referring to what we would think of as a fellowship lunch. There is really no way to be certain. And the commentaries are divided right down the middle. But if he meant the Lord's Supper, then here is your example of what would be called visiting communion. Visiting communion. Paul and Luke and the others are all included in the we of verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. If that means communion, Paul's saying we were all there and we were participating with the Lord's Supper with the, with the church at Troas. And that would mean that all the Christians at the First Baptist Church of Troas welcomed Paul and welcomed his co-workers to their Lord's Supper. And that, I think, resonates as very likely. And if that is correct, then you have the one biblical argument to practice what is called close, not closed, close communion. Open communion says, if you're here, whether you're baptized or not, whether you're a member of a church or not, you you can take, it's all totally up to you, that's open communion. Closed with a D means only the members of this church participate in this communion. Close communion, no D, means the members of this local church And all those who are baptized members in good standing of some other gospel preaching church are welcomed and invited to join us in this meal. Even our convictionally paid a Baptist friends who are baptized according to their wrong understanding, but members of their own church. And we think that does the greatest justice to fencing the table without excluding genuine Christians. A few years ago, the elders took lots of time to study this through and decided that we would like to start saying this at our Lord's Supper services after I preached these sermons. <laughs> and it's in your bulletin somewhere, I think. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of Christ for the local church. As an ongoing family meal, it's repeated, it is a repeated affirmation of our common faith. Just like a family extends hospitality to visitors by inviting them to join them for dinner, it's our honor to invite guests to this table. Our conviction is that the Lord's Supper is for baptized members who are in good standing of gospel-preaching churches. If that describes you, you're invited to join us as your guest. So that would then become part of the way we would fence the table. Fencing doesn't mean on guard. Uh, Fencing means... uh, 
putting up a, a barrier. And every faithful church is going to establish that fence every time they participate in the supper. That is an act of love because participating in the supper in an unworthy manner, 1 Corinthians 11, makes you guilty of the death of Jesus. That's serious. So the one minor change we would like to enact is instead of saying what we currently do, which is, if you're a Christian, please join us at the table, we would like to help those who are guests here by saying, if you're a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church, please join us at the table. Why do we want to do that? Because when we say, if you are a Christian, what we mean is, are you a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church? Because that is how the Bible conceives of a Christian. But too many people hear, if you are a Christian, and interpret that as, I had a Jesus moment once in my life, or I prayed once, or I'm Roman Catholic, or I happen to sporadically a couple times a year go to an evangelical church, and they proceed to eat and drink judgment on themselves. I'm up here and I watch them. How many people do you know personally who identify themselves to you as a Christian, but you know they have no concept of the gospel, have never repented and put their faith in Jesus, but they conceive of themselves as Christians? As the, one of the guys who has to stand up here and do the fencing work, I speak on behalf of all the elders, we are not eager to be responsible for encouraging self-deception. We want to do all we can to verbally fence off the table from those who should not be participating and fence in those who should. And using this more precise language, language will, will more effectively hold back those who should not be participating and welcome those guests who should. And I want to stress that we verbally fence our table. I don't know, I've been asked this a few times, like, are you guys going to, like, rip things out of people's hands? Like, no, I don't, that's weird, man. Uh, no, we're not intending to do that. We verbally fence. We want to verbally fence clearly, and we want to do so in a way that people who might be confused about their own spiritual state will gain greater clarity and not be eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. If we have warned as clearly as we can and someone chooses to still join in, they are going to be responsible before the Lord for their choice. But members, if you're sitting there and you happen to notice an unbeliever, an unbaptized person, a non-member of any church participating in the Lord's Supper, it's not just the pastor's plural job, but it is all of our jobs to take opportunity to speak to that person privately, lovingly, winsomely, patiently after the supper about their choice and try to understand, do you, do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand who this meal is for? You may gain a great gospel opportunity from that. We are seeking to point out to people that the whole point of the Lord's Supper is the active remembrance of Jesus. Who's invited to this Lord's Supper? All the members of this church and all the baptized members of other gospel-preaching churches who happen to be visiting with us. Bread, wine, true believers. Now, manners are a very interesting thing. 
Mostly you just grow up with manners. You don't even know who taught you your manners. You never think about your manners. You simply adopt the broader culture's way of doing things. And many of us, myself included, tended to do this with the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. We treated our actions at the table like they were just manners. And we might even feel a little bit offended when someone is asking us to change our practice because it feels like you're stepping on my manners. But it's our prayer that looking carefully at the text has helped us to chuck some manners and replace them with biblical principles. And having thought through that carefully, we can move forward all together with one mind in practicing the things that we have here. What is it we're trying to do? Actively remember the past and the future of Jesus so that in the moment we can delight in him and glorify his name. The clearer we get all the rest of that stuff, the better we'll do that, which will be to the praise and glory of him. Let's pray together. And so, Father, give us much grace to keep looking carefully to your book. And I pray that we might be convinced from the text and that we might be of one mind as a church. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.